Matthew chapter 20, verse 17. Let's pray and, and we'll examine this passage. Father, I do thank you and praise you, Lord, for you are so good to us. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it's living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. Lord, I come to you today and I ask that you would, uh, by your spirit, Lord, help us to, to navigate this passage. Uh, in many ways, this is a, a cross-cultural letter uh, removed by some 2,000 years. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand the setting um, that happened uh, during this time that Matthew writes about. Father, I pray that you would help us to bridge the gap, Lord, that you would help us uh, to draw principles from the story that apply to our lives and ultimately uh, that we would walk closer with you day by day. We love you, Lord. We praise you. And we ask this in Christ's good name. Amen. Matthew chapter 20, verse 17. As Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside by themselves and on the way he said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day he will be raised up. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And he, and he said to her, What do you wish? She said to him, Command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit on your right and one on your left. But Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them, My cup you shall drink. But to sit on my right and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those whom it has been prepared by my Father. And hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall become your servant and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. As they were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. And two blind men sitting by the road, hearing that Jesus was passing by, cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, Son of David. The crowd sternly told them to be quiet, but they cried out all the more. Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. And Jesus stopped and called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, we want our eyes to be opened. Moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes, and immediately they regained all their sight, regained their sight and followed him. And Lord, we do thank you for your word. Uh, Lord, I, we ask that you would help us now. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. Okay, so as an introduction, I have a map behind me. We've been sort of following our way through Matthew. I've, I've sort of zoomed in. Hopefully, you guys have a good idea of, of the layout of Israel. What you're looking at here is the very northern part of the Dead Sea. Uh, the red arrow coming uh, from the south, um, it comes all the way up from Capernaum. So we know that as they were making this journey, 
Uh, this is one of two journeys that they would have made each year. They celebrated three feasts. It was required of them. Um, they would, in the spring, head down south. Um, as they went around sort of the left side or the west side of the Sea of Galilee, they would hook around uh, to avoid Samaria, and they would come down the east side of the Jordan River. Uh, they would make their way down about 80 miles is about the distance down, and then they would cut across uh, through Jericho. We believe that this is the location. There were two Jerichos during that time, and just to keep it simple without, like, we're just calling this Jericho, Jericho. Uh, they, they went through Jericho and then into Jerusalem. Um, they would come for this time. They would come for Passover. They would stay the 50 days for Pentecost, the second uh, required feast to be in Jerusalem for, and then they would come back in the fall, September time, for the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. Um, and and so, so here we are. Today's story, we'll see, is a, a story that's, that's moving. It's easy to sort of um, to, to read a, a story in the Bible and think that it's uh, um, static, that they're kind of sitting there in a classroom and Jesus is teaching. This story is a dynamic story in that they seem to be moving along as this is unfolding. Uh, they would walk great distances, and as they're walking, Jesus would, would sort of teach to his disciples sort of shoulder to shoulder in a sense that they would be talking along the way. We know that they start over here, They've moved their way here, and and we know that they're moving towards uh, Jerusalem. Down in verse 29, we see as they were leaving Jericho. So somewhere between here, in our story, they're going to hit Jericho. They're going to continue on. At the end of our story, in verse uh, chapter 21, verse 1, we see that they've then arrived at Jerusalem, that they're looking into the great city of Jerusalem. And so the story is moving along to get us to this place um, Jesus, in large part, has been teaching, and uh, he's, he's had the disciples in isolation. Uh, slowly, the last couple of weeks, there's been crowds as they've, if they've journeyed in this as a city down to Jerusalem. Um, there's been moments where great crowds followed them, that people came for healing, and Jesus, we we're told, healed them. We, Jesus was confronted by the Pharisees and scribes as they got down to the southern region, and they asked him a question about divorce. Jesus sort of flips the question and starts teaching about marriage. And so they, they work through that. Uh, children are brought up about the, the, the children are sort of how we need to become in the midst of the kingdom. Um, trying to remember what happened last week. Oh, yeah, then we had the young rich ruler. The young rich ruler comes to Jesus. Uh, he seems to have a really good heart, a good Jewish boy. He, he's followed all of the commandments. He desires, Lord, I'm still missing something. What do I need to do? And Jesus basically says, if you really want to be blessed, sell all of your stuff. Give it to the poor and follow me. And the, the young man basically understood that what Jesus was telling him was the right thing to do uh, for in his situation, that, that his stuff had become an idol to him. But at the same time, even knowing that Jesus gave him a, the right command, he couldn't do it, we're told, because he had a lot of stuff. And so he basically went away grieving, sorrowful. We don't know how his story unfolded. Then Peter sort of looks at Jesus and says, well, what, what, what about us? What about me? I've given everything away. And Jesus says, you know what? You 12 in verse um, tw- uh, 29 or 28 of the previous chapter, he says, you know, you 12, you'll have 12 thrones in my kingdom and the new kingdom that come. Uh, you, you 12 will have a, you will have a special place. But quickly from that, he says, don't get too uh, high on yourselves. And he tells the parable of the workers in the field directly related uh, to Peter's question that the last shall be first and the first shall be last. 
And I, and I think that that parable was sort of told uh, to, to humble Peter and the disciples to recognize, don't think that you're special in the kingdom. And so now we come to our story, their, their journey along, and, and Jesus pulls the 12 aside. Verse 17, Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem. He took the 12 disciples by themselves, and on the way he said to them, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. Two, two comments on Jerusalem. Uh, I'm sure I've said it before. Uh, they would always refer to going up to Jerusalem um, for two reasons. Uh, even though that they, from our minds they were going down on the map, um, they were heading south, but Jerusalem is very high in elevation. If, when you have an opportunity to go there, I hope you guys can be there, be praying about our next trip in three years. I'd love to have all you guys come. It'll change you and how you see the scriptures. There's no way um, to avoid going up when going to Jerusalem. It's, it's up on a mountain. It's a city surrounded by a, by, by a hill, and, and so you, you have to go up. They're making their way sort of from the Dead Sea, which is the lowest place on earth, up to Jerusalem. They're making a huge ascent. Uh, in addition to the geographical reasons of why they would refer to going up to Jerusalem, um, there was spiritual connotations. Jerusalem is God's city. This is where his temple, everything resides. So it was to, to move upward, uh, closer to God, towards his temple. This was a big, big deal. The excitement is building for them. They understand that Jesus is the Messiah. Three of them have seen significant things like the transfiguration and uh, Jesus revealing his glory. There's, even though he's, he's continuing to tell them about the cross and the crucifixion and that things are going to happen differently than they anticipate, they still have in their mind that Jesus is the Messiah for he is. They thought he was ushering in the kingdom. And so there's this swelling eagerness and desire for them to get there. And here Jesus again, verse 18, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will be delivered, uh, I'm sorry, the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day he'll be raised up, your, your Bible may make a note. Most commentaries will say that this is the third time uh, that, that Jesus has begun to share with them about his death, burial, and resurrection. I do believe that you can make a case that this is actually the fourth time. A lot of commentaries will sort of reference one another without doing the groundwork, and it's like it's very easy to skip over something. So I put the references up here where you can see in Matthew, starting in uh, chapter 16, verse 21, this is the first time Jesus begins shifting his story or not shifting his story, he shifted his teaching. And, and, and it's chapter 16 up at um, Cap, uh, Caesarea Philippi. He begins uh, to explain to them that he's going to Jerusalem, he's being drawn to Jerusalem, and he's ultimately going to give his life in Jerusalem. It'll be handed over. And then in 17, verse 12, he tells them the Son of Man is going to be handed over um, and, and suffer violence by the men. And in chapter 17, verse 22 uh, 33, it's a different setting. Again, he references his death, burial, and resurrection. And now again, with the most detail, they're now a week out from the cross. And Jesus, this is, this is overwhelming detail that Jesus is giving. Look at what he says here. The Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priest. So he says, I'm going to be handed over to the chief priest. They're going to have a trial for him. And they're going to condemn him to death. But the Jews did not have the authority 
Stick executes somebody that they have condemned. And so they're putting the death penalty on Jesus, but then they're going to have to transfer him over to another authority. And we'll hand him over, verse 19, to the Gentiles. The Gentiles, they were the ones who had the authority to execute capital punishment on a prisoner. So he says the Jews, the the scribes and the Pharisees are going to hand me over uh, to the Gentiles. The Gentiles will then continue uh, the process. For the first time, he brings up the crucifixion. Not only does he say that he's going to be killed, he says specifically that the way he's going to die is through the cross. And then he has this, he will be raised up, which I think they didn't see. We know that in the previous times when he brings up the the cross, that when they hear this, they're so grieved and, and moved in sorrow that I don't think that they, well, first off, when somebody dies, right? Logically, you don't, you don't overcome death. You die and you die. There's, you just, like, you don't just sit around a dead person and say, well, they're going to come back. Let's give it a couple days. Maybe then. So they, they hear death. That's, that's, that's a permanent sort of thing. So I'm not going to, like, knock them because the, the resurrection's a miracle. This is something that in, in hindsight for them to understand is one thing, but to hear Jesus say this is a totally different thing. Um, when I look at this repeated the mention of the cross by Jesus, this tells me something that, that, that we need to understand, number one, that without the cross there is no Christianity. Um, Paul makes his case in 1 Corinthians 15 um, that if there was no resurrection from the dead, then, then we as Christians, that we, that we should be pitied because if there's no resurrection, none of this matters. And so the cross is sort of the jugular vein of Christianity. Without the cross, there is no Christianity. There is no salvation. There is no payment for sins. Jesus is trying to help them see that the second part of Christianity is that Christianity and suffering go hand in hand. The prosperity gospel, the health, wealth, and that your life is suddenly going to go better when you become a Christian, a follower of Christ, that doesn't fit the biblical account. Um, throughout the scriptures, we see that those who give their lives to Christ will then cut against the culture, their family, and often suffering and persecution come in this lifetime to many Christians. So Jesus is, is sharing with them, demonstrating, explaining ultimately um, his leadership, who he is, um, modeling for them this this, this truth that he's been sort of delivering to them, that the last shall be first and the first last. Um, Jesus, there, Jesus is first. He is the Messiah. He is God. And yet he humbled himself. He became a man, and he's showing them that in his deity, he is still going to walk this walk towards the cross and ultimately display um, our example. And the irony of this whole story like Jesus is bear, like bearing his soul to them. We know that going to the cross was not an easy thing. We see that Jesus praying the night of, that he's sweating drops of blood, asking the Father, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass for me. And so in the midst of Jesus talking about his death, Salome rolls up. And it, like I want to say it's funny, but it's also kind of sad. Um, 
verse 20. So in the midst of Jesus talking about his death, burial, and resurrection, how he's going to suffer at the hands of the Jewish leaders and the, the Gentile leaders, we see that the mother of the sons of Zebedee they came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. So I don't know how this story, like if there's an accordion effect or Jesus finished talking about his death, burial, resurrection, and as they're kind of broke from that teaching subject, Salome, we know her name, this is the mother, that she grabs her two boys, the sons of Zebedee. Jesus uh, um, had nicknames for them, the sons of thunder. We know these as James and John. John, who uh, you know, wrote uh, the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and, and uh, Revelation. So she grabs her two boys. She approaches Jesus humbly. She sort of bows down. There's a, there's a clear um, posture of reverence towards him, uh, seeking something from him. Now, a little background that, that, that we, we, we can't quite know for sure. I'm inclined to sort of hold this position. My wife holds this position. This is one of the ones we don't argue about. And so last night when we were talking about this, she's like, I agree with this. And I'm like, I agree with this too. But I still think, I still think Barnabas was wrong. And she's like, why'd you have to go there? Like, that's like our, our big argument in our family about whether Paul, who was right, Paul or Barnabas in their, their argument. Uh, um, and so, she, so, so what's believed is if you, if you sort of piece together the Gospels and you follow their mother and how she's referred to in various accounts, it's... It's very plausible that Salome is actually the sister of Mary, which then what would that make her to Jesus, her aunt? And it would make uh, James and John cousins. So, so there's a number of people who hold this. It's not so black and white that you can say absolutely. There's a strong enough case that I have this leaning. And so here the 12 guys are. There's James and John. And throughout the whole story, it's, it's sort of speculated by most that James and John put their mom up to this question, and you'll see it in the response. He begins to respond. Uh, he begins to respond to her, but midway through, he shifts what he's saying to them. And the ten who are upset about this whole thing that's unfolding, they seem to be upset at them. This seems to be sort of a power play on their move. But so she comes up to them. She bows down humbly before Jesus. Jesus sees, oh, she's got a request. And he asked her, and he said to her, what, what do you wish? What do you wish, Salome? How can I help you? How can I serve you? I, I love how Jesus interacts with people. He knows where this is going. And she comes up with this bold request. She said to him, Command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit on your right and one on your left. So there's a couple thoughts. I, I, this would be a great Mother's Day message because moms have a certain way of viewing their sons as being the most spectacular individuals in the whole entire universe. So there's sort of this, like here she comes rolling up with her two boys. It's Jesus saying, like, hey, Jesus, we're family. These, these are cousins. She's not entirely off base because I already referenced uh, chapter 19, verse 28. It says, what Jesus says to them in the regeneration, um, when, when I'm sitting on my glorious throne in the age to come, you also shall sit upon 12 thrones. So he, there's already been this indication that there, there is a special place for them. And so she's, 
just trying to get the seating arrangements taken care of. That if they, they if her boys could be on the right and the left, so it's it's funny to me. But at the same time, it's like Salome, he's heading to the cross. Were you not just listening, or did you miss it, or did your boy like? Jesus is talking about his death, burial, and resurrection, and you're talking about where your boys are going to sit next to him. And I love the, 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 gentle, the gentleness of Jesus. I love his patience. Jesus is continually telling them that if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, be like a child. If you want to be great in the kingdom of God, don't seek for first place, look for last place. This reminds me of when I first uh, really entered the ministry. I was in Bible college and seminary uh, for a number of things happened to where I found myself at a Mexican church, and in a Mexican church, they speak Spanish. My wife could do very well in Spanish. I struggled. I did great at eating every week because it, it was, I love the culture of a Mexican church that you are fed every, every week. And, and so we found ourselves in Sunday school. And it was a tiny Sunday school. So there were like three little kids. And I'll never forget this one little kid. He was from Cuba, or his parents were from Cuba. And his name was Papo. And Papo had the biggest smile. I'm guessing he was like six or seven. And he spoke English. So Papo was my full attention to, to minister to this kid week in, week out. I'm giving him the answers to everything going over that you're saved by grace alone through faith, and that's how you become a Christian. It's not by works. For months this has been going on, and I'll never forget one Sunday, and I'm like, I've told him the answer every single week for months now. And I go, hey, Papo, I have a question for you. If you want to go to heaven, how do you get there? He looks at me, and he says, I got this one. Don't hit my sister. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Like, don't you remember everything that we've talked about? Okay, let's try this again, Papo. And I'm like, well, you're not supposed to hit your sister, but that's not how you get to heaven. So don't, don't, don't go saying that I told you it's okay to hit your sister because that's, how, if you want to go to heaven, how do you get there? He's like, I got it, I got it. Don't swear. I'm like, no, and I, like, I think I just gave up at that point, and I'm thinking like Jesus has got to be sort of, I'm try, oh, how many times does he have to explain to them that he's going to the cross, that, 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 this, that his kingdom operates differently than the earthly kingdom? And I see great patience in his voice to her. And I'm so thankful that Jesus is so patient towards us. So patient. And but Jesus answered in verse 22, but Jesus answered, he says, you don't know what you're asking. You, you don't have a clue what you're asking, Salome. This, this makes me think of, when I get young men who want to become Navy SEALs, they'll come to me and they'll say, oh, I want to see I'm like, I'll be more than happy to sit down with you and talk with you. But most of my talks go, you don't have any idea what you're talking about. You don't, like, this isn't the movies. Like, there's a war going on. You don't, you don't want to go, like, walk away, walk away, walk away. And, and a lot of the kids I can discourage from, like, don't, don't, it's not for you, walk away. And I kind of get the idea that Jesus is saying, you, what you're asking, you don't have a clue what you're asking. Like, I'm going to the cross. And, and what you're really asking, that if you want your two boys to sit at my right and the left, that means criminal number one and criminal number two are going to be at my right and left. On the cross, there's going to be two guys next to me, but you don't want that of your boys. You don't have a clue what you're asking because that's my throne. That's where I'm going. I'm going to the cross. 
And see, at this point, after he says this to mom, notice how he shifts his attention to the boys. James and John, I think, are the ones who did this little power play to have their mom sort of approach Jesus to try to scooch them up the chain of command a little bit. They were already, they were already in the top three of, of the disciples. Remember, like throughout the, uh, this gospel, we've seen a couple of times, specifically um, the transfigura- transfiguration, that it was Peter, James, and John who were allowed to see this, and the nine were sort of separate. So there's already sort of this line in the sand amongst the disciples that has them arguing over who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom because I want to sort of fight for that position. And so now these two seem to be making a power play that has kind of Peter wedged out a little bit. So their mom, Jesus, potentially Jesus' aunt. And then he says to them, are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? So the cup, this is a reference to suffering. When, when this whole sort of idea of a cup is being talked about, um, Father, if this cup could pass from me, let it pass. He's speaking about the suffering. And he says, are, are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? And they said to him, we are able. Now, I'm, I'm torn over what to think about this. Like on one hand, there's sort of that I want to laugh at them like, oh, these young, ambitious guys, they're so arrogant in thinking. But I'm not, I'm, I'm not inclined to go that direction. I'm more inclined to think that James and John were, they understood who Jesus were. They, they understood who Jesus was, were. They understood. When they say to Jesus, we are they understood the cup that he was talking about, or at least in part, they understood it was suffering, and they said, we are able to go this route. Now, if we go back to chapter 16, the first time Jesus talks about the cross, what happens? Peter gets all upset, and Peter says, Jesus, forbid it, may it never be, Lord. I'll die before you die. I'll give my life for you. Well, how does Jesus respond to him? He says, Peter, you don't even... <laughs> in fact, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows three times. Now, how does Jesus respond to these two boys that say, we're, we're able? See, Jesus doesn't correct them. He, he acknowledges. He says to them, my cup you shall drink. So I think these guys knew. I, I, don't, I don't think that they were off track. I don't think they were being boastful. They were all in, and they understood that their lives, their souls, everything hinged on who Jesus was, and they would follow him to their, to their deaths. And James would go to his death. James, in fact, was the first apostle to be martyred for the faith. In Acts 12, verse 2, he's, his life was taken uh, by Herod. John, on the other hand, he was the only one to die of old age, but tradition holds that he was, he was boiled alive in a vat of oil and that he survived. And ultimately, he was exiled as a result of that. So he suffered greatly, um, for the name of Christ. And so Jesus doesn't scold them. He doesn't say, you guys are going to reject me. You're going to run away. You're going to scatter. He says, you know what? When you, when you say that you're going to drink the same cup, you will. And you, uh, you I mean, this is a huge compliment. I mean, it gives me goosebumps. For Jesus to respond in the context of Jesus' suffering going to the cross, these two guys say, we're going to drink the same cup. 
And Jesus doesn't laugh at them. He says, my cup you shall drink. You will. But to sit on the right or the left side of me in the kingdom, that's not mine to give. And we see this sort of this subordination between the Son and the Father. And he says, but for those, it's, it's for the Father to decide. It's for the Father. There are individuals who the Father has prepared for those two seats, and I, that's not mine to give. Trying to figure out if I want to go ahead here. Okay, I'll move on. I think that they're so close. Like, like the thing that, that has me in this is these guys are going to give everything for Christ. I mean, history shows that these guys gave all in following him. They're so close, so committed, and yet they're so off on another sub. Like this whole chasing for, for their, their place of authority. They're so close, and yet they're so far away. And then in verse 24, we read, And in hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two. They, they, the, the ten are furious with these two brothers. Um, I, I think about these ten guys. Really, I think about the nine guys. Because if we were to go back to chapter 18, verse 1, as they came back from the transfigura- transfiguration, they arrive into Capernaum, and the tax collector guy came just to sort of jog your memories. And they, they walk into Jesus. They say, we want to talk about who's the grace of the, in the kingdom. And Jesus, he grabs, I imagine, like a little toddler boy, and he stands up. He says, if you want to be great, you've got to be like this child. And Jesus begins teaching to sort of correct them on the issue. Um, but, I, I've, I've, but then back at Peter in verse chapter, you know, the, last, the previous chapter, 1927, P- Peter asks Jesus, well, we, we gave everything away. What about us? And Jesus says, listen, there's, 12, there's going to be 12 thrones with my throne, and you guys have those, those places occupied. So clearly they're... They're, they're fighting and scratching to the top. And when these two boys make this power play with their mom, I suddenly, with Peter, have the, the image of, you know, that shows Survivor, where they, you know, everybody, somebody gets voted off and, and they get down and, and the alliances start forming behind people's backs. And I see old Peter, who's in this alliance of three, he thinks he's good, the top three, suddenly... They bring in their mom, who is possibly Jesus' aunt, genius. They form this alliance, wedging Peter out, and I see Peter just furious. How could you? I thought we, huh? That was really, why didn't I think of that? Like, oh, they are angry. <laughs> but Jesus sees all of this unfolding. I love, like, Jesus like, okay, kids, let's get together. Let's, let's, let's circle up again. Let's, uh, let's, let's talk through this. But Jesus, in verse 25, he called them to himself and he said, you know that the, the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great men exercise authority over them. You guys know how rulers operate in, in the world? The Gentiles, they have an iron fist. They use the people to basically hold their life, their power. They, they use the people as their warriors, um, to, to serve them as their subjects. They collect taxes on them to, to fund themselves. And Jesus basically says, like, it's, it's not this way amongst you. 
This whole topic of servant leadership in the secular world today, in businesses today, originated with Christ. He says, you guys have seen leadership in the world, but leadership in the world doesn't, it's not like that in my kingdom. It's not that way amongst you. But whoever wishes to be great shall be your servants. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Like this is term, like slave, servant. This isn't terminology that I see a lot of volunteers for. The night of the Lord's Supper, when they have that room set up, the guy that they lined up the room with, like they, they made it clear that they want privacy. So normally there would be a servant there to wash their feet. And I come to that story, and I imagine the 12 sitting around so there's no servant there, and Jesus is watching them like they're arguing about like, well, if somebody's going to wash the feet, that kind of puts them in last place, and I'm not volunteering for that. And it takes Jesus, like, get up from the table and says, guys, get over here, I'm going to wash your feet. I can't believe we're on the last night of my life, and you're still arguing about who the pull position. Like, I seriously, like, this is, they're not getting it. Like, I don't think we get it. And so Jesus says, like, if you want to be great, be a servant, a slave to others. I, I see this, and I, I, like, this week, I think with Ben coming, like, I've been thinking about some things, like, like, into my brain, like, things that I wonder about. I, uh, like, I wonder next week after he's done preaching, and Melanie has to put the sermon online, what's she going to write? Is she going to write Benjamin Fredericks? Is she going to write Ben Fredericks? Is she going to put Pastor Ben Fredericks? We haven't licensed him yet, but he's serving as a pastor. Put the Honorable Reverend. I don't know. I'm kind of like tinkering around in my mind. Like, what do we, like, what, how can we mess with him? Like, what can we, you know, I'm sure his brothers could come up with a bunch of great ideas of, of, of titles. And then I started thinking, you know what? Like, I love it that Larry, during the announcements, just calls me Gunner. Like, I, I really, like, I get, like, there are people who refer to me as Pastor Gunner. I'm okay with that. Like, I'm not. But I start thinking, like, in the scripture, pastor is never used as a title. It's used to describe sort of a function of a person. The only person who ever has the, the title pastor associated with them is the Good Shepherd Christ, the ultimate pastor. And, and so when I start thinking about this, and I, I sort of, like, in my, I cringe when people say, well, yeah, I'd like to approach you about um, what's the situation on deacons in the church? Because I really like to call the title of deaconship. You know, like I, give me I need a name tag and we can really run with it and you know see the kids. Oh, my dad's a deacon here. You know, like kind of let's. And I think that sort of like the pull position for authority is why a lot of churches are unhealthy. So I kind of like I'm not big into dishing out titles. Like we like we have leaders in the church and they're they're certainly men and women who I that are deacons and deaconesses within our church. But I don't highlight like the title, because it gets really unhealthy. Or there's the potential for it being really unhealthy. Um, you know, the, the longer I'm a pastor, the, 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 the longer I've under, I understand that the root of most problems are total selfishness. Like in marriages, in brothers, sisters, children, individuals that just live and breathe. Like we go around this world, like how does it affect me? How does it affect me? How does it affect me? Oh, that affects me bad, so I'm really upset about that. So I don't like that. So I'm going to voice a complaint to somebody. And I think that my role, so many times when people have issues and they come up to me, like, like I'm thankful that the, I'm, I'm really, really, really blowing things out of proportion here, but just to kind of make a point. A lot of times, you know, people come and they'll have a voice of concern, a complaint, and how it affects them. 
And I found that over the years, like what I do is like, well, have you considered these other people? Like, like really, the reason that we are doing it that way is because we have to consider all of these over here. And when you consider all of these over here, there's like the, ah, ah, like, okay, that's why we do it that way. So I'll, I didn't even think about other people. I was only thinking about myself. Like, can you imagine what churches around the world would look like if when people rolled into church, they were like, I wonder how I can serve around here. How can I be a help? How can I, how can I serve? Where a lot of times people roll into church and say, how can this church serve me? Oh, there's not this, there's not that, there's not this. I'm going to go check out another church in order to serve, see how they can serve me. And I would suggest if you see something here, it might be a great idea. And so come to me. But I warn you, when you come to me and say, hey, there's this great idea, can we do this? It's not received like, sure, I'll take it on. It's like, hey, that's great. I think God's leading you up in this area. Let's run with it. But I... I sense that when Jesus uses the terms slave to them, I could sense some pushing back because humans tend to view themselves oh so much more important than they actually are. And I could see the guys like internally kind of, I don't want to be a slave. Let James and John do the slave. I'm so furious at them. They're the youngest ones here. They should be the lowest on, you know, like they should be the lowest in the pecking order. And so then Jesus, as they sort of like this, this talk about if you want to be great, be a servant, be a slave, he's going to demonstrate to them how the king is going to operate. See, Jesus is the only one who could be saying, like, I'm the greatest. I'm the one who you guys should be worshiping. I'm the one that you should be following. But look at me. Just as the Son of Man, referring to himself, did not come to be served, I think of Philippians 2, 5, this idea, let this attitude be in yourselves as was in Christ Jesus. And the whole point of that whole Philippians 2, 5, this great Christological passage describing who Jesus is, the whole point that Paul is making in that section is to Christians that like our Lord who breathes the world into existence, who gives us life and breath and everything that we have, he's the creator of it. He who is greatest among all, he stepped down into human form, took on the, the form of a bond servant. He gave his life. He was the ultimate servant. That's the attitude. He, the whole purpose of that path, passage is to show that we as followers of Christ need to be servants, that we need to be humble. And Jesus says, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and then to give his life as a ransom for many. This is Christianity right here. This is the cross. This word ransom is a fascinating word. This is a word to describe a situation that during that era, when wars happened, when one side, when one side decimated the other side and there was, a, uh, there was a winner, immediately after the surrender or they could no longer defend themselves, the next stage in the battle is the soldiers would go out on the winning side and they would just start collecting all of the losing soldiers. And then they would collect the soldiers, they would bring them in to become slaves in their nation as a surviving soldier in this situation, this, this was the most shameful thing that could happen. But then as they, as they collected the soldiers, they would begin to collect intelligence on who's who because you had, I mean, this isn't like today where like high-ranking guys are, be, you know, the other side of the world on a computer screen sort of calling the shots. This is everybody's there. The generals, the grunts, everybody is all together. And so as they collect and they're like, oh, this is general so-and-so. This is his great advisor. This is so-and-so. And so then what they would do is a redemption value would be established for the various soldiers depending on their ranks. 
And so then the losing country, if they wanted to receive those soldiers back, they had to pay a ransom. Jesus is making the point, yes, well, what does that have to do with me? The deal is, is that God created all of us, right? We're his, period. Like, he owns us, number one, because he created us. But then he lost us. As sin entered the world, we were taking captivity to sin. And so now in the battlefield, if you're apart from Christ, you're held hostage by the evil one. And so Christ came a second time to buy you the second time by his blood. He paid the ransom so that he could buy you back for freedom. They're arguing over first and second place. And he said, I've come to give my life to pay your redemption through the ransom of my life. And you're bickering over what seat you're going to sit in. And then we come to this, like I just love how things piece together in the Bible. Like there's a couple stories here. We see Jesus talking about the cross and then we see Salome coming and trying to get her boys and then from that it sort of leads into this discussion about how you, if you want to be great, this is how you're really great. And then all of a sudden these, the two blind guys enter the story. It's a beautiful picture. I'm just going to quickly run through the story because I don't... It says, as they were leaving Jericho, so they've made their way. They're getting close to, to Jerusalem. By 21 verse 1, it says, when they had approached Jerusalem. So, so we're moving, we're getting close. This is like, a, like this is exciting time. If you, in those days and today, if you go to Jerusalem, like I'll make you guys, we'll all go like, work through the Psalms of Ascent. And, and, and this was, ex- I mean, the energy is there. And as they're getting to Jericho, there's a large crowd followed him and two blind men sitting by the road, hearing that Jesus was passing. They cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd sternly told them, be quiet, shut up. (laughs) And so that just made him scream out even louder. And they cried out all the more, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. So what are they begging for? They're saying, Lord, have mercy on us. Lord, have mercy on us. Their theology is right. They're blind guys. They're probably sitting at the gate of the city where they would beg for money. What's all this commotion? I hear something's going on. What's, what's happening? Oh, it's Jesus from Nazareth is coming. But they understand to say this is uh, the call out Jesus or Lord have mercy on a son of David. This is a great message. They understood their Bible. They knew that the Davidic covenant, that there would be a son that would come through David, that would be an eternal king, the Messiah. And they're identifying that promise, the Davidic covenant with this Jesus. And so they're screaming out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. And that really is, should be all of ours cry. We don't want fairness with God. We want mercy. We need mercy. So they try to quiet him down, and they keep, that just makes him cry out all the louder. To have blind people in Jericho is not a, it was not an unusual thing. Uh, I have no idea what this plan is, but, but history says that in Jericho there was a certain plant that was medicinal for the eyes, and so blind people sort of flocked to... Um, to this region to try to get treatment for their eyes so that they could get that they could see again. And these guys are crying out. They, I don't like this plant didn't work for them. It probably didn't work for most. They're crying out for mercy. And I love Jesus' response. I keep saying this today, but Jesus is just brilliant. Um, he's so compassionate. They're screaming out in the crowds, and so he's like, "Hey, hey, hey what? Now, how can I help you guys? Like, what do you want me to do for you?" And I think that there's a lesson here that when you pray, don't pray, oh, Lord, bless my family. Well, what do you want me to do for your family? 
we're really struggling in this area, like specific prayers. He says, what, what do you want me to do? Like, I think we look at the story. It's like, well, they want to see again or they, whatever. Like, I don't, like, it seems obvious. He's like, well, what, do you, what actually do you guys want me to do? And, and they do say, Lord, we want our eyes to be open and move with compassion. Jesus touched their eyes and immediately they regained their sight. And, and I think the key is that and followed him. Jesus treats these guys very differently than the young rich ruler. He touches their eyes, he asks their request, and then they follow him. He, I think he understood each individual's barrier, and he's not going to sort of, you, you need to get through the barrier, like so where you surrender all with Christ. And so when I look at the story, there's the guys who are so close to Jesus, and they seem to, to, to miss the most critical thing about his coming, the cross. And yet here are these two blind guys on the, on the corner of the road who understood so clearly who Jesus was. You know, I think of uh, a couple blind stories. I think of, I think of Newton, you know, John Newton. And, and, and he wrote the song, we sang a rendition of it, Amazing Grace. He says, I was blind, but now I see. There's another song that talks about from that same manipulation. But I see so clearly. Like in the movie about um, William Wilberforce, Amazing Grace, there's that one line where William Wilberforce goes to his pastor, who's John Newton, and he's sitting there with, his, with John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, and he's talking to him. And it's like this, the actor was brilliant, totally blind. And he looks at me, he's like, you know, I used to be able to see, but now that I can't see, I can see more clearly than anything before. Then there's Fanny Crosby, who was, uh, went blind at like six weeks old. She wrote thousands, of, like, I, I don't know what to say thousands upon thousands, but she wrote a ton of hymns. She was brilliant and, and, and witty. And there's a story of a pastor in her age, pastors sometimes put their foot, feet in their mouth, Pastor goes up to Fanny Crosby and he says, you know, like it's amazing. God has blessed you in so many ways. How is it that he didn't bless you with eyesight? You know, he's given you so many gifts. It's like, you, come, are you serious? But Fanny Crosby, the story goes that she didn't skip a beat and she looked at him and she said, if I could go to the day before I was born and I could ask one request of the Lord, what I would tell him is, Lord, please don't give me my sight. Because the very first thing I want to see when I can see when I'm redeemed and I go to heaven, the very first sight I want to see is the face of my Lord. It's like, oh, I can just see the pastor being shamed through the whole, you know. And I think there's power. So I see these blind guys. And I think that ultimately that's, this is where the story is driving to. We're moving towards the cross. Matthew wants us to understand, if you want to be great, be a servant. We need mercy from the Lord. And if you've received God's mercy in your life, it changes everything. And Father, we do thank you for this life that we have in Christ. Lord, it's so easy to, to know a lot about you, to know facts about the gospel, but to miss everything. And so, Lord, I pray for those who are in our midst who maybe aren't sure of their position with you. Father, I pray that you would help them to understand um, the mercy that they need to call out for, that they would understand um, who you are, your gracious nature, your love and compassion for us. We thank you that salvation is not based on works, but is about 
faith, and we're saved through your grace. Father, help us to follow after you. Help us to be humble, Lord. Help us to see others through your eyes. We love you, Lord. And that's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen.